you've changed the rules in the middle of the game here, and we don't like it. And by th sending a threatening legal letter rather than just sending a ferocious lawsuit, they're opening a negotiating window to say, let's see if we can settle this. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, October 9th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly tells me about a couple fancy parties he went to last week, one for Puck in Washington and another in New York in celebration of a new book about the New York Times. And John tells me how both of these little shindigs were a sign of the times. And we discuss DirecTV challenging CNN over its decision to put its linear programming on the streaming service Max. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. If it's Monday, you know it's Media Monday. I'm joined by John Kelly. We've got some inside media dish today, don't we, John? Because there were two very schmoozy parties that you attended this week that involve all of the relevant power players in media, obviously. The New York Times and Puck. <laughs> First, John, uh, we had a little welcome event for abby livingston who is our newest writer at puck covering congress and kicking a lot of ass our favorite texan how was it we had a little dc meet and greet for her a lot of big names were there what was the most exciting conversation of the evening was it sherry bustos or amy klobuchar it, it was probably the latter and you know it was a great night uh abby was there we were celebrating terror's new show too julia has a, a great new narrative podcast about a boy which is about the making and early unraveling of one vladimir Ilyich Putin. And uh, the party was at the Silver Line, which is in the bottom of the rigs. Uh, the, actually, a sort of swell part of D.C. You're close enough to downtown, but without being in it. You're near Pennsylvania Avenue. If you want to go for a run around the mall, it's nice there, too. It's, it's, I feel like a lot of Washington is just one sort of compass coffee or potbelly sandwich after another. But this actually was a, a delightful, <laughs> beautiful part of town. And I had a lot of fun kibitzing with Amy Klobuchar about you know what was going on. Uh, on the hill during a, a very mm -hmm. e exciting week and and she's a lot of fun to talk to Debbie Wasman Schultz was there toasting Abby Abby's got a lot of friends Tara's got a lot of friends we all know Julia's got a lot of friends and it was a great party plenty of puck all-stars Kevin Madden Meredith Whitney our friends um love being there but hilariously love I just come from a party that Graydon threw at the Waverly Inn on Tuesday in New York for Adam Nagurney's new book about the New York Times. So it was sort of mm -hmm. like a New York Times bat mitzvah. And I got to tell you, Peter, you know, we don't try and break the fourth wall all the time because that's a little glib and smug. But there were many people who came up to me 
like this, you know, the stelters of the world who kept saying, are, are you guys going to talk about this on Media Monday? So sure, we had an awesome, incredible party for Abby and Tara and Julia in Washington that Liz and her team oversaw. It was fabulous. But I feel an obligation, like a professional obligation to talk about the Graydon party first and foremost. Okay. First of all, a uh, shout out to distant family friend, Compass Coffee founder, Michael Haft, <laughs> uh, and his new bride, Sophia Gross, who is a former Snapchat colleague of mine. They got married this year. Um, why should we give a flying F about Graydon and the Waverly Inn other than the burger? Oh, oh, you're 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 being charming here. <laughs> Graydon, as you know, is the ultimate Media Monday listener. I, I can picture him laughing right now and, and rolling his eyes and, and and putting his hand across his furrowed brow. Look, I've seen him make many a time. Times Kremlinology, as you know, is one of my favorite arts in the world. And they were out and about. I mean, I, I almost imagine there were more New York Times people at the Waverly Inn than there were actually at the New York Times. Nagurney is sort of positioning his book to be the answer to the power and the glory, which was Gay Talese's book from uh-huh. a zillion great years book. ago about the, a, a totally great book about the ascent of Clifton Daniel, a, a book that probably you and I and zero other people in their early 40s have read, but was a totemic like book in, in my life. And, and there was Gay Talese there at age 90 looking better than you or I. Um, Wait, Talese was uh, there? He was there in, in oh my a gosh. hat and a three-piece suit. Oh, the guy is timeless. I'm so jealous. He was there. Maureen was there. Mark Tracy was there. Carolyn was there. Joe came. This is all going down, by the way, as Kevin McCarthy was like being defenestrated. Dolnik was there. Right. Silverstein was there. They were all there. Everyone was there. It, it was it was <laughs> a, a house of times. And Rutenberg was there. I, mean, I, could, I could go on. I am going on. And my favorite part of the night, and I love these guys, you know that, I I can't get enough of of the place, was every time I'd see a Times person and we'd, you know, uh, kibitz a little bit, they'd say, oh, I gotta go, I gotta go. And and by the way, like, I stayed because half of them live in Montclair, so I didn't want to take the train back uh, in in, in a loaded uh, New York Times party bus. But you would see out of the corner of your eye, they'd say that they were leaving and then they'd run into another Times person. And just like a high school cafeteria, you'd see them all sort of break off into their corners looking across saying, well, I wonder what's going on here you know um uh, i can only imagine when i turned around to see uh silverstein and and stelter talking that they must have been talking about why brian didn't take the ben smith job and and i assume those are the sort of inside times baseball Mm -hmm. conversations that populate the night but good on graden for hosting it god knows the times wouldn't have done that for one of their own so it takes a major domo like graden to put together but it was a fun Old school New York night. I tell you, when I was a kid in in short pants, long before you were the mayor of Venice, I went to one of those things like a week. There were book parties all the time in New York. That was one yeah. of the reasons that you lived here and you you weren't an investment banker. But that's a lost art and leave it to Graydon to, to keep it going. Well, yeah. And you for the next generation. Sorry, no shade to yourself, Graydon. Uh, you look you still look very young in your early 40s, as John was mentioning. We're all here in yeah. our early 40s. You know, but you threw a great book party for Bill Cohan. Uh, last year, last fall, that was wonderful. So you can carry on the traditions. A few points of personal privilege on this conversation. A lot of people listening to this podcast probably live in New York. A lot of you have probably been to the Waverly Inn. But for those of you who haven't, maybe you live in Seattle or St. Paul or Austin, Texas, whatever. Or Milwaukee, you, right? Or Milwaukee, my favorite, my third favorite city in the Peter Hamby city tree. Um, my mom went to Marquette. When you get a menu at the Waverly Inn, the first thing on the menu is a quote that says, Waverly Inn, worst food in the city, 
Donald J. Trump. <laughs> it's like, That's right. I chuckle. <laughs> I chuckle every time. Two quick notes, though, on what you mentioned. Maureen Dowd, you said, was there. When Jimmy Buffett died, she wrote a column, sort of an homage to Jimmy Buffett. And credit to Maureen Dowd, my mom who loves Jimmy Buffett. And that was my first concert, John. My mom took mm, me and my brothers right. to see Jimmy Buffett in Williamsburg, Virginia in like oh 1989 God. or something. Neville Brothers opened. Um, <laughs> the uh, By the way, the... House of Delegates, then controlled by Democrats in Virginia in the late 80s, but still a bunch of scolds, Democrats in Virginia and the Commonwealth were still pretty conservative, tried to block Jimmy Buffett from performing on a public university grounds because he was lewd and crass. Uh, Obviously, Jimmy Buffett won the day and it was a sellout concert. But anyway, Warren Dowd wrote this piece about Jimmy Buffett. My mom emailed her just out of the blue, doesn't know her. Just like, you know, generic email address. Yeah. And she, she wrote back in like 30 minutes and was like, oh, we miss him. So that's really nice of you, Maureen Dowd. And secondly, everyone should go buy the Nagurney book. I have not read it, but he was so nice to me out on the campaign trail in 2007. Oh, really? When oh, I was like a young. Yeah, because he used to be like the Titanic political reporter, the campaign guy. Yeah. You know, covered, yeah. covered Albany and came up. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Apple. I could I will always remember the older distinguished journalists who were nice to the young reporters and the ones who were pricks. And I will never forget. So Adam Nagurney, uh, you are definitely not a prick. I always find in my endless interest in in Times criminology uh, to, to sort of decipher the subliminal messages that Times reporters try to signal both to the market and, and inside of 628th Avenue for where, where they want to be, how they want to be remembered in the, the Times pantheon. And they often do signal them through their books. Leibovich, when he was there, was going to be the sort of, you know, think outside the box, uh, Romana Clay personage inside the newsroom. Obviously, you know, Jody Cantor has become mm-hmm. the, the sort of creator of a, a global movement. Uh, Maggie Haberman is the Trump person, you know, the Trump of all Trump person. And then other people like the, you know, Jody's husband, Ron Lieberman is, is the sort of smart money person. Anyway, everyone sort of defines their brand in the Times pantheon uh, through the the book projects that they take on on the outside. And Adam, the gurney, is absolutely trying to identify himself as the most credentialed Times historian within the Times, too, which is just mm. an interesting sort of meta maison scene that, that took place there. And I, as I was taking it all in, I couldn't help but think of the fact that I only worked there for a couple of years, and I sort of found the place more interesting than some of the work I was doing there. I don't mean that in any way uh, dismissively, but it's just, just how I felt. And I am... I'm amazed, though, by what is happening, because I recall being in my early 30s, closing the door, being with an incredibly senior person there on a Friday afternoon where it seemed like you know mm-hmm. the, the world was sort of out to lunch. And this was mm-hmm. after the Carlos Slim loan. It was after Bezos bought the Washington Post for $250 million, a, a staggeringly low sum. And we just thought that it was going to drip, drip, drip its way out, that, that, that the Times mm-hmm. company would go the way of what happened to other once august media entities, in particular some of the, the entities of the Henry Luce empire. And just to see how Mark Thompson and Meredith Cobb 11 turned it around, the Salzburgers deserve a ton of credit. They could have blinked or sold at any moment. They never even considered it. And they built something robust. And, and look no further than the Washington Post CEO search to realize just how unbelievably hard it is to do what the Times did. People credit the Trump boom. That's a small, small piece of it. 
success in media isn't just about momentum and heat. It's about building sustainable business models and executing yep. them. So it was a, um, a a nice resounding note to end the evening on. They were on the come up before Donald Trump came around. We'll go to break, but I should mention now that you said the name Henry Luce and we're talking about the New York Times, the inspiration, once again, for the name of this podcast comes from my journalism idol, a former Timesman, David Halberstam, who wrote my favorite book about the history of journalism, The Powers That Be. So this is a big uh, book plug podcast, a big name droppy podcast. Uh, And when we come back, we're going to talk about something that news consumers probably care about a little bit more, which is streaming and the future of news. That would be the conflict emerging between CNN and DirecTV. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Happy Monday, everybody. It's Media Monday, of course. I'm joined by John Kelly. John, I want to read to you the lead of a variety piece by Brian Steinberg. Quote, at least one of the big companies that distributes CNN via cable or satellite is unnerved by how closely the company's Mm. new live streaming service looks like its TV network. Big satellite distributor DirecTV has let executives at Warner Brothers Discovery know via letter sternly worded letter, that its executives believe the similarities between the two products violate the carriage contract between the two companies, according to a person familiar with the matter. Basically, what's at issue here is CNN announced over the summer that they're launching CNN Max, and it'll be available on the Max app streaming, et cetera. And basically, they're going to dupe a bunch of the shows that run already on linear CNN, The Lead with Jake Tapper, Anderson Cooper, CNN This Morning. CNN announced this with some bravado. Warner's streaming chief, J.P. Brett, like said, this is additive. We're not worried about getting sued over carriage contracts here. But it is kind of a, a breach from the usual way of doing things when it comes to streaming versus linear. What's your take on this? I mean, is there going to be like a lawsuit here? I liked how um, you and Dylan put it the other day on the show that there's sort of the varsity content and the junior varsity content. And they're trying to simulcast the varsity content. I am so interested to see how this resolves. In an era where linear television made approximately a gajillion dollars a year by forcing people to pay a lot of money for for cable providers, which was passed through to networks, you know, and everyone did so well, there there were a set of rules that were enacted. And we see across entertainment media that in a new era where people are scrounging for dollars and the business models are unclear that people are rewriting the rules as they go. And I can see why if you're Warner Brothers Discovery 
and you're David Zaslav, you must think to yourself, why would we spend $500 million to build CNN Plus and create a bunch of very JV content, the Jake Tapper Book Club, et cetera, et cetera, that nobody wants just to get started on streaming when we have great stuff that we should just be moving over there and like, let's put our business affairs and, and legal team to work to find loopholes in our agreement so that we can do this, so that we can simulcast Wolf Blitzer and Aaron Burnett, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're the provider, and don't forget, like, Cable providers, I don't know if you want to include DirecTV in this, uh, and DirecTV, I should say, Disclosure, is a, a TBG company, TBG is an investor in Puck, a lot of disclosures on the show. You know, th- these are traditionally not incredibly popular companies because they hmm. pass on a lot of cost to the consumer, but to me, to my untrained eye, I'm not a lawyer, they're completely within our rights to say, hey, you've changed the rules in the middle of the game here, and we don't like it. And by th- mm-hmm. sending a threatening legal letter rather than just sending a ferocious lawsuit, they're opening a negotiating window to say, let's see if we can settle this, similar to you know what, what just happened with Disney and Charter. So there may be some sort of resolution here where all of a sudden, lo and behold, in a couple of weeks, you're, you're only able to watch Michael Smirconish on Max or something. I, I don't think that's going to be how it works out. But, but there, there may be a room for a negotiation here. Either way, the genie is out of the bottle. Uh-huh. And there is going to be a constant war, in my humble opinion, and that's going to play out in the next five or so years over how these large media companies relate with the providers, how, how they rewrite the terms of their relationship, because there's just not enough money in the system to, for everyone to get what they used to get. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if some of these big linear TV networks just like dare streaming companies or satellite companies to like sue them, <laughs> you know, cause like you just, ha- you have to punch through and you have to reach people. And it's like, at some point you got to like get out of these contracts somehow. I think this is going to be as revolutionary in this business as NIL was to sports, you know, like drink oh. twice. We talk about sports, people, people flip out, they hate it. But for a long time, state colleges, large colleges, power five colleges, I mean the, the schools in the, in the big, in the big conferences were able to create, particularly in football, Mm. $100-plus a year in revenue Mm -hmm. based on the power and prestige and the TV contracts of their program. So a school like Alabama, you know, the head coach really is a CEO, right? He's the one who's responsible for making sure that Alabama is the the leading light in a CBS or, I guess, now ESPN – a uh, cable package that disperses probably, you know, 50 to 100 million dollars like sight unseen to these schools. I mean, even, you know, little old Rutgers in in my uh, adopted home state makes 50 million dollars for a, a lackluster football team because it's in the Big 10 now. And then of course, there's all the fundraising and then the the gate and so on and so forth that that makes it all work. So, you know, these are actually been people who are running basically probably billion dollar valuation companies and they were paid extraordinarily well because they were rainmakers and it all worked because the labor was free these were students who were given an athlete and and, and all things considered at a school like alabama and i don't know how many students there are per class in alabama let, let, let's hazard a guess it's thousands they can probably make room for a couple hundred football players there that, that the school can afford for free the equation changes dramatically when all of a sudden these athletes can make money. And now we're in this in-between impasse phase where they can make money not from the school, right? They're um, they're making money through uh, extracurricular uh, things like, you know, Caleb Williams at USC now does Wendy's or Burger King commercials. But what happens if these players are absolutely responsible for, for the revenue in some indirect way or, or I guess direct way? 
get a pass through the same way the coaches do. It'll change everything. We don't know if that's going to happen, but there are, Eric Gardner's documented this, there are lawsuits working their way through the courts that are questioning this every day. So what happens similarly, in, in to, to wind up this, this long metaphor, in this disintermediated space here where you have cable companies that are parts of big media companies who are trying to reorganize their business model and they realize that they don't want to pay this guy anymore because they have to pay another guy to do that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. all hell will break loose and there will be a complete rebundling. And, and again, to, to, this is the, the final point. The realignment we see in college football, um, I can already hear people tuning out um, among conferences, is actually a rebundling by another word. And I think it's a leading indicator of the massive rebundling that's going to take place in entertainment media. This, this legal threat might get settled, but at the end of the day, it's actually just the, the forward-leaning harbinger of, you know, myriad more lawsuits that'll lead to the recombinations of companies, spins, an entirely different viewing experience for people. So it's a it's a little, um, you know, shot across the bow that mm-hmm. leads to a lot more. Yeah, no, I'm actually, I'm glad you brought up conference realignment because that is a media story. I mean, you know, out here in California, it was a huge deal when UCLA said it's going into the Big Ten next year and Cal is going to the ACC. These moves, like they violate whatever sort of contracts existed before they are antithetical historically geographically culturally to how fans of those schools here in california think about their college football programs like oh you're going to wake up at 7 a.m to watch (laughs) wake forest play cal you live in like oakland or something but that's it's a media story i mean you know the power of the dollar the power of the the contract the power of the advertising you know they're daring fans not to follow along with these conference realignments even though it's crazy that cal is playing like nc state in a college football conference because the viewers are going to come along uh and i don't know i think we can continue to thread out this sports analogy over future media mondays let me let me thread it out one one last beat before we get out of here peter which is the the one reason the pac-12 fell apart isn't just because UCLA and, and USC sort of shorted it a year before, but the Pac-12 turned down a guaranteed Apple TV contract that would have paid them handsomely, and they had a fear that going with a streamer would have made them unreachable to many people in their core markets. And that may be true. I'm sure it was true. Figuring out how to thread this media needle is is essential for putting together the fabric of a lot of different businesses. When when the Apple deal was sort of laughed off the table, it turned out nothing else emerged and everyone else went to grab the bag. And um, economics are about incentives and, and people follow their own motives. And, and we see that that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty pure and occasionally ugly uh, form of, of self-interest and it's how these things rebundle. All right, John, enjoy your myriad book parties on the East Coast this week. I'll see you in the Slack. All right, man, I'll see you there. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.